What is the best way to do missions? That is possibly the wrong question to ask. The right question could be, what are the ethical means and goals of missions? Or how does missions produce virtuous Christians? Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review Virtuous Persuasion, a theology of Christian missions by Michael Niebauer, 320 pages published by Lexham Academic in July 2022. This book is part of the Studies in Historical and Systematic Theology series. It's $19.99 in Amazon Kindle and $26.99 in Logos. I got this book for free to review. Lexham, the publisher, has no input in this review. Michael Niebauer is a pastor of Incarnation Church, Pennsylvania, also a teaching fellow at Trinity School for Ministry and a podcaster for the Christian Catechesis podcast, This We Believe. He was a church planter for 15 years in North America, and he has a PhD in systematic theology from Duquesne University and specializes in Christian ethics and missiology. You may wonder, how does Christian ethics and missions come together? Christian ethics, isn't that all about abortion, um, capital punishment, or the future of AI in war? How can Christian ethics be used in mission? Oh, I know, it's used when missionaries do bad things, like take away children from their families, or when people kill twins or albinos because they believe the babies are demonic, or when, when the people kill widows because they believe wives should follow their husbands into the afterlife. Well, what happens here is that you have a narrow view of what ethics actually means. And uh, none of that, of what I just said, is, has anything to do with this book. Niebauer quotes Herbert McCabe's definition for ethics, which is, Ethics is the quest of less and less trivial modes of human relatedness. Now, don't you want a less trivial life? <laughs> of course you do. And that's why you are listening to this podcast. So let's open the book. Apart from the introduction and conclusion, the book has seven chapters divided into two parts. Part one is titled, The Critical Task, Three Models, Three Problems. And the chapters are, uh, first chapter, Mission and the Missio Dei. Uh, then next is Mission as Growth. And the third model is Mission as Dialogue. Then we have part two, which is titled The Constructive Task, Mission, Virtue, and the Practices of Proclamation and Gathering. The chapters are chapter four, uh, Mission as a Virtuous Practice, chapter five, Proclamation, chapter six, Gathering, and chapter seven, Entering into the Craft of Mission, Tragedy, Tradition, and Telos. I'll briefly, very briefly, explain what are the three models. In the first model, mission and the missio dei, the idea is 
Mission is God's activity. God the Father sent Jesus the Son. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. And then the Trinity God sent the church into the world. So the church's mission is inseparable from God's mission. The problem arises when the church's mission is indistinguishable from God's mission. We ask, where does the work of God begin and end? Where does the work of man begin and end? By conflating the two, by merging the two, we cannot meaningfully speak of man's role in mission. So we have here a problem of distinction. In the second model, a mission as growth, the idea is the success of mission is measured by numerical growth and the activity of mission is to achieve that numerical growth. Niebauer writes, I quote, For the mission as growth paradigm, the controlling image is the advancement of God's kingdom through the increase of the number of Christians to the ends of the earth. This exerts a control over the types of scriptures used, such as the parable of the sower, Peter's speech in Acts 2, and also how much missiological texts are construed. Here, because the goal of mission is the increase of converts and churches, and such goals are advanced through an, ad and through an understanding of the mechanics of human nature, Biblical texts related to mission are construed as missional contrivances. They provide replica models for how to produce effective mission. End quote. You might, hearing that, might not see or hear a problem. I mean, problem? What problem? The Great Commission means we need to go and save all the souls out there. And if we are not thinking this way, the problem is not with this model. The problem is you. Well, <laughs> let me put it this way. When the mission effort fails, when it fails, how do you respond? If you are thinking, hmm, what went wrong? What went right? How can we improve? What can we do next? Then whether you realize it or not, you might be pinning your hopes to the yet-to-be-discovered method. If only you could discover that method or tweak the methods that you have, then you would win those souls. You just need to push the right buttons, pull the right levers, and all these souls will come tumbling out of hell into heaven. Niebauer points out that the mission as growth diminishes agency, which is the ability to make a choice. For both the missionary and the people he is reaching out to. The problem with the growth, uh, mission as growth model is agency. And finally, in the third model, mission as dialogue, the idea is the missionaries of the past did terrible, terrible wrongs. Colonization, westernization, forced coercion, and that's not what the Bible teaches. According to this mission is dialogue model, rather than trying to convert unbelievers into Christianity, Christians should be having respectful dialogues with unbelievers. The purpose is not to convert them. The purpose is to self-convert for us, the Christian, to be a better person at the end of the day. 
Now, how can this model be Christian? Where is the Great Commission? How can its criticism or persuasion, what it says, what it calls manipulation or coercion? I mean, how can this criticism or persuasion stand in light of Peter's sermon to convert thousands, or Stephen's defiant speech, or Paul's testimony before kings? King Agrippa recognized Paul's attempt to convert him. He asked, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul did not reply, I'm just having a dialogue. <laughs> Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Since persuading unbelievers to convert is obviously part of missions, why, why did Michael Niebauer include this model? At first, I thought he needed a foil to contrast with his definition of mission, which includes proclamation, okay, which we will talk about later on. But I just cannot see Christians accepting the mission as dialogue model, which got me thinking. Instead of trying to locate ourselves in one of these models, it may be better to see how these models have influenced how you and I think of missions. Because mission as dialogue seems to be what most Christians are doing. <laughs> I mean, many of us think that it is better to dialogue than to proclaim, better to delay proclamation indefinitely, so we profess the Great Commission and are rightly indignant when it is set aside. But we set it aside in practice. So just because we don't recognize the name of the model that Niebauer uh, proposes or puts together, we don't know the people who invent it or teach it or promote it. And just because we would never identify ourselves with this model, it doesn't mean the model is not in us. For instance, everyone agrees that everyone is created equal, but many don't know that this idea came from the Bible. Men are created in God's image. People who would never describe themselves as Christians never, nevertheless take that Christian concept and have made it their own. <laughs> So if you do read this book, it is not helpful if you think tribally. Okay, which tribe do I belong? You will not see yourself in any of these models. So you will reject them. And thus you may not hear clearly what Niebauer has to say. Perhaps you can think of it this way. We can describe models of government, okay, models of government in ancient Rome or Israel or the Byzantium Empire. It should not be difficult for us to admit that our system of government may be influenced by, by those models, okay, Rome, Israel, or whatever empire, and so on. And we can recognize the influence, we can critique the models, uh, and that's what Niebauer helpfully does. He uses theological ethics to criticize models that may simultaneously, these three models, influence at varying degrees our understanding of missions. So that's part one, the critical task. 
Now we move to part two. The constructive task. Niebauer writes, I quote, In highlighting the ways in which the problems of distinction, agency, and persuasion perpetually recur throughout these various models of mission, I am suggesting that the potential solutions to these issues lay outside of dogmatic and anthropological approaches to mission, and that the field of missiology lacks the resources to adequately solve them. While the discipline of theological ethics has provided the primary critical tools for identifying the perpetual problems of mission, it also provides the resources for solutions. End quote. Which means, basically, that uh, we need to use ethics to understand how to solve the problem here. And the answer and main takeaway from this book is this. Mission is a virtuous practice. Mission is a virtuous practice. It sounds axiomatic. Of course, mission is virtuous. What can be more virtuous? What can be a more virtuous practice than missions? Stop, 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 stop. We can't just assume things. You can't just assume we understand what we mean by virtuous practice. We need to unpack what does virtuous practice means and then what are the implications. And that's what Niebauer does in these four chapters. And along the way, he addresses the problems that uh, he has brought out in the three models. Just taking one example, because we don't have a lot of time to do the rest. In the Missio Dei model, we had the problem, you, me you remember, of distinction because we conflate, we merge the mission of God and the mission of the church. Everything is God's work, so in that case, what am I doing here? Now, Niebauer shows us in the chapter 4 how Thomas Aquinas, that, do you remember that guy, that really smart guy from 800 years ago? And just showed how Aquinas would understand and resolve that tension. You see, Aquinas saw the relationship between God and creation as asymmetrical. Okay, so it's different. It's not symmetrical. The way we think of God and man, it's, it's not symmetrical. And that is the key. So Niebauer writes, I quote, God is not in space or time, and as such can act in created things without displacing created things. God's agency is thus not competitive with human agency. Because of God's infinity, the two agencies are not competitive, as if God acts 75% and the creature 25%. The activity of God is differentiated from the activity of human beings. God is able to send himself in ways that human beings cannot. God's agency functions in a way that human agency cannot. God can go to where he already exists. Humans go to where they do not exist. God can act without displacement. Human beings act through displacement. As I reflect on this answer, I thought about breathing. We breathe. We say that God sustains life. Without God, there would be no air, no oxygen. But when we say God sustains life, we mean more than God providing the air, the oxygen that we breathe. We believe that without God, we cannot breathe. Now, that's not as if God and I are taking turns to work my lungs like a ventilator. or, But in a way that I don't yet understand, God's work is differentiated from my work. So that I can say I breathe, 
yet it is God who makes me breathe. Does that make sense? So even though I don't understand the mystery of how God and I come together for me to breathe, my ignorance doesn't stop me from breathing. In a similar way, I don't understand the mystery of how God and I come together for missions, but my ignorance doesn't stop me from doing missions. I can do missions well. I can study missions. And I have an influence in how missions turn out. With that, I echo what Niebauer says here. I quote, God exercises divine agency in a way that is different from and only analogous to human agency. For Aquinas, God exists in all things. God exists within all things and intimately so. End quote. And that's not all Aquinas has to say. There is still some, one more thing that I just need to tell you. Niebauer writes, I quote, A key assertion by Aquinas is that the ultimate goal or telos of the human being is the vision of God. God is the greatest good. And since the good is that which is desirable and the terminus of desire, God is what human beings are created to desire, as well as where their desires terminate. Final and uh, to quote Aquinas here, final and perfect happiness can consist in nothing else than the vision of the divine essence. Quote, uh, and uh, Aquinas quote. So Aquinas here also then quotes Saint John: "When he shall appear, we shall be like to him, and we shall see him as he is." First John three two. End quote. So the there's lots of things here. There's lots of things in chapter four. And I'm shortcutting the discussion so that we can reach the conclusion of this, uh, this uh, thought. If you want to see how the argument unfolds, you have to read the book. So the idea here is that from 1 John 3, 2, we get our goal, which is to see God, to know Him, to glorify Him. And in this life, we are moving. We are moving towards that goal. And so what we do today, what we do now matters because we are moving towards that goal. Niebauer writes, All activity that is deliberate bears a moral character, providing the opportunity for human beings to act according to their good and move toward their final end. end quote. Now, this is a big claim. You may not have heard it clearly enough, so let me just say it again. All activity that is deliberate bears a moral character. So, so I mean, he needs to substantiate this, and he does. Niebauer does explain why this is so. But if this is true, and we are going to assume that it is true, this then leads us to Niebauer's next step, which is to show that mission is a virtuous practice. And what we do in missions, because it is a deliberate activity, everything that we do inside missions has a moral character. Nothing is value neutral. And that next step is the and our next step is the definition of a virtuous practice. Alistair McIntyre defines it as any coherent and complex form of socially established cooperative human activity through which goods internal to that form of activity are realized in the course of trying to achieve those standards of excellence which are appropriate to and partially definite of that form of activity. And quote Gubli Duk. Whoosh, that is quite a difficult uh, definition to follow. And Niebauer breaks down each part of that definition. 
All right. So it does sounds like a lot of gobbledygook, but then uh, uh, bear with me. For <laughs> I'm not going to go through all of it, and I'll just pick out one. I'll just pick out one. And because it's the most striking, and you can see uh, how uh, the uh, how sharp the the definition is. The definition says that a virtuous practice is an activity through which goods internal internal are realized, not external. Money is external. When people commend you for your good works, for your good deeds, that commendation is external. When many people come to church, many people get baptized and become faithful Christians, as good as that good is, and it is good, that good is external. So what is an internal good? Niebauer gives examples of temperance, prudence, and faith. And so a virtuous, hear this, so a virtuous practice is one in which goods internal are produced. Can you see that earlier on we say, of course, missions is virtuous practice. What can be more virtuous than missions? Now, can you see that not everybody would agree now that missions should be construed as a virtuous practice? Can you see that it clashes with the mission as growth model? Of course, those missions as growth model also say, of course, we have internal goods as well. That's not the point. The point here is that mission as growth, their focus, their primary aim is to see missions as a way to increase numbers. Whereas in this model, it is a clash. It's saying that missions should be construed primarily, all right, not secondary, not peripherally, primarily as a way to produce internal goods. So there are still some missing pieces because we have not yet defined what is missions. And in this, Niebauer uh, adapts Kevin Rowe's analysis of the book of Acts to conclude, mission is proclamation with the hope of confession of Jesus as Lord, and mission is the gathering of those who confess into Christian community. He later says, my assertion is that proclamation and gathering are the two essential missional practices because the removal of either renders mission incoherent. End quote. And that's it. We just put everything together. And this is Niebauer's thesis. Mission, which consists of proclamation and gathering, which are activities that produce virtual mission. Sorry, let me start again. Mission consists of proclamation and gathering. And these are activities that produce virtue in the missionary that orients him toward the goal of his life, namely God. Okay, so proclamation, gathering, virtue. And this definition makes an impact. It's not just another entry into a dictionary somewhere. It guides us on how to think of missions. It corrects us in how we think of missions. And he unpacks all these things with one chapter on proclamation and one chapter on gathering. And when you read this, even the most anti-intellectual would appreciate what Niebauer does here. Proclamation starts with prayer. That's what he said. Can I get an amen to that? Then after prayer, we have preparation, communication, then the response, and finally a return to prayer. So Niebauer takes everything we have talked about, the models, the problems, Christian ethics, and shows us how proclamation should be best understood as a virtuous practice. 
And if my review so far gives you the impression with all that defi definition, all the dryness and all those very, very long sentences with lots of jargon thrown inside, if I give you the impression that this book is very dry, uh, listen to this. I quote, And so the missionary actively delights in what God has done through the act of proclaiming the gospel. They delight in the opportunity to speak about the resurrection. They delight in convincing others of its validity to the best of their ability. They delight in the responses to the affirmative. And they even delight in their fidelity to the gospel in the face of its rejection. To participate in God's mission is to participate in the fullness of God. Delighting in the act of proclamation sediments God's goodness in the soul of the missionary. And because God's goodness is an infinite and inexhaustible plenitude, it spurs the missionary on to further proclamatory actions. End quote. Do you hear that? Joy, delight, doxology. And in, that, in all those things, the echoes of everything we have been talking about. And that theology, climaxing with doxology, can also be seen in the next chapter on gathering, which I will not um, uh, talk about in, in detail, but I'll just quote this part. Niebauer writes, I quote, The joy is not in seeing simply a community established, but a community that is in communion with God and each other a community that is growing in their love and knowledge of God through Jesus Christ, and a community that has been given every spiritual gift needed to thrive. End quote. So again, there's lots of things. There are fantastic chapters, very uh, practical, building upon what was discussed about the virtuous practice. And it does, it does give a different view, a very helpful view, a corrective view of what missions is. And that brings me to my next observation. To me, a model is robust, okay? We're talking about robust. When you can take that model, put it under conditions it was not designed for. You burn it, freeze it, throw it into space. And if that model survives, it is robust. Niebauer convinced me on the power of this uh, virtuous model because it is robust enough to answer questions that other models can't. How should the missionary learn his craft to improve? Because if it's all God's work, what are we doing here? Again. <laughs> or if it's growth as a mission, okay, mission uh, as growth model, then, I mean, uh, if we want to improve, do we learn from business management or, uh, or advertising? Or what, what, how, how do we learn? So the virtuous model answers these questions. It also answers questions like, are there professional and amateur missionaries? How do we think about these things? And uh, how does a missionary handle being simultaneously a citizen, a son or daughter, a parent and a pastor? Can you hear the tension in that last, in that last question? I mean, many of us struggle trying to juggle all these roles that we have. If you reflect on the virtuous model, you can actually come up with an answer yourself. The model gives you the tools to answer these questions. And I suspect your answer will not be too far from Niebauer's here. That is how good the model is because it trains you to think about looking at things and then thinking of what is the end goal and what are the activities, how are they producing internal goods in your life. All right, So that's virtuous practice. 
among all the implications, and there are all these various questions and, uh, and implications, among all the implications of this virtuous model, the one that jumped up to me was this, and I quote, I'm excited about this. Niebauer writes, my conception of mission and virtue calls for a recovery of a now-faded literary genre, that of the missionary biography, end quote. When I read this, I was so happy. <laughs> I, now, I just look back, okay? I imagine at that point in time, what would the other models say about the missionary biographies? The, the biographies, you know, of Amy Carmichael, of Hudson Taylor, of, of uh, William Carey, all those wonderful missionary books that I read. I read and, and the Missio Dei, uh, the first model, missionary, would say, these stories show God's sovereignty and purposes coming to pass. They are a call to worship God. Stop looking at the missionary. They didn't do much. <laughs> uh, the Grove missionary looks at these books and say, These guys were great guys, but what they did, they did a hundred, two hundred, five hundred years ago. The world, people, technology, culture has all changed so much since then. There is little we can learn from them. Stick to the mission, guys. Figure out how to reach those souls out there. Stop looking at the past. The dialogue missionary, on the other hand, is aghast at these books. Oh my goodness, they are converting all those people. <laughs> he will either hide these books or apologize profusely for them. But the virtuous, the virtuous missionary, the, okay, the model, he looks at these uh, stories okay, and how they honor God. All right, so that's, that's, I think, one of the best things about this model. John Allen Chow uh, died alone on the beach because he wanted to share the gospel to the Sentinelese in India. Jim Elliot was speared to death by the Huarani tribe in Ecuador. He wrote these uh, haunting lines. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Their lives, their stories can only resonate, call us forward, because Christians share the same telos, the same goal. And we should recognize and applaud that virtue that is in their lives. Virtues that all the other models are blind to. In conclusion, if you are a missionary or a serious student of missions, you must read this book. And if you are reluctant because you like what you're doing in missions, you think you have the right idea, and you don't want Niebauer giving you grief, oh, please don't think that way. These are all models. They are not tribes. Nobody is asking you to change citizenship. And I honestly think mission is important enough that those who can should reflect on the theology of missions. But other than missionaries, this book is also for you, the everyday Christian. And let me ask you, are you a virtuous person? Do you see what you're doing now, right now? Whether you are driving, drinking coffee, or getting ready for bed, do you see your actions as moral actions? Now, these may come to you as alien very alien questions. And here I recall that uh, Socrates quote, the unexamined life is not worth living. Now that's a bit too much, uh, but the point stands. And here is the beautiful part. The author in this book is saying, you should 
live a virtuous life. Not only that, you can live a virtuous life. So this book applies Christian ethics into missions. But as I read it, you and I can, with some effort, apply this robust, virtuous model into our non-missionary work. My recording this podcast episode for a book review is a virtuous practice, as I read the definition. And that is an eye-opening, soul-enriching realization of Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let me end this uh, book review with this quote. D. Stephen Long, the Cary M. Maguire University Professor of Ethics at the Southern ba- uh, Methodist uh, University, wrote an endorsement for this book. It goes like this. Virtuous persuasion is the most important work on moral theology and missions that currently exist. It should be in the hands of everyone, scholar, clergy, or lay, involved in missions, end quote. That is an outstanding endorsement, one I heartily echo. This is a Reading and Readers review of Virtuous Persuasion, a theology of Christian missions by Michael Niebauer, 320 pages published by Lexham Academic in July 2022. This book is part of the Studies in Historical and Systematic Theology series. It's available in Amazon Kindle for $19.99 and $26.99 in Logos. I got this book for free to review. Lexum Academic had no input in this review. And just an announcement, just an announcement. The free books for Logos and Faith Life are out. We have two commentaries, not just one. We have two commentaries for free from Logos. The preacher's commentary on Luke and John Corson's application commentary on the New Testament. Now, John Corson's commentary is 1,824 pages long, and I won't be reviewing that. (laughs) Instead, I will be reviewing not a free book, but a discounted book from Faith Life. Uh, which is The Counselor, Straight Talk About the Holy Spirit by A.W. Tozer. So if you like Tozer, or or even if you have never heard of Tozer, be ready to listen to my review of his book in the next episode of Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Thank you and bye-bye.